You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guests today are two of my all-time favorite musical theater actors, Ken Page and Betty Buckley. And there are parallels to their stories. Both grew up dreaming of performing on Broadway, Ken in St. Louis, Betty in Fort Worth. Both were cast in the original Broadway production of Cats, Ken as Old Deuteronomy and Betty as Grizabella, for which she won a Tony. Both became key figures in the vibrant community that transformed musical theater over the past several decades. In addition to being the voice of Broadway, Betty Buckley's acting chops earned her roles as the stepmom on the hit TV series Eight is Enough, and in films including Carrie, Tender Mercies, and Frantic. But first, I'm talking with Ken Page. You may know him as the voice of Oogie Boogie in The Nightmare Before Christmas. In his breakout role on Broadway, he played Nicely Nicely Johnson in an all-black revival of Guys and Dolls in 1976. He went on to perform as the Lion in The Wiz and in the original cast of Ain't Misbehavin', Ken Page was drawn to musical theater early. Yeah, it was my lifeblood. It was the thing that got me out of where I was to where I went. It was the thing that kept me going through years of up and down childhood things. But it was always musical theater and all of that related world that got me through. I mean, I remember being 10 and 11, of course, watching Barbra Streisand's TV specials going, I am Barbara Streisand. And I would go to the library in St. Louis, the big public library, and in the basement, they had a section of LPs. And I would thumb through all of these Broadway cast albums. I would read the liner notes. And this one lady, when I first couple of times I came, she was a little trepidation, like, what are you doing in here? And she saw, you know, I'd be sitting on the floor reading Broadway cast album liner notes. And I'm sure she thought, is this child from... Mars or what is the deal? Right. But I started to educate myself that early about musical theater because it just fascinated me. And of course, the on- two only things that I really saw was the Tony Awards mm-hmm. once a year. And I would see all the shows and I was fascinated by it. And we had this grand outdoor theater, still have in St. Louis called, at that time, it was the Municipal Opera. And now it's called the Muni. So a lot of people in the business know the Muni. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I saw a live production on stage it was oklahoma with robert horton as curly and he came out on a real horse and all that <laughs> people in missouri demand no less they must have a real horse that's right show me the show me state so he came out on a horse and of course when you see something like that you fall in love with it and subsequently it's a lot of shows and it was the theater that made me really fall in love with musical theater because i could see it and then it was the theater that inspired me to move to new york and what did you study, voice, acting? I did. Did you go to acting school? I did. I went to two years at Fontbonne University in St. Louis on a scholarship. I like to say this because now I'm over 50. I can brag, right? I received a scholarship in art, music for vocal performance, and theater. And I chose theater. Subsequently, at the same time, those two summers, I did seasons at the Muni 
in the ensemble. I started when I was 18. Those two shows at the Muni, were those your first two shows you did? Had you been doing shows when you were younger? When did you start performing in front of people? In front of people, really sixth grade. I was part of a, a thing here in St. Louis called the Bellarmine Speech League, which my cousin had been in. But it was one of those uh, competitive citywide things. So that was really the first time I stepped in front of people performing. And then, of course, in high school, I did your usual high school musicals, Funny Girl, Oliver, Hello, Dolly, Fiddler on the Roof. And it was that that led me to audition for a scholarship for college, which I got. I wish at the time I'd known about Juilliard and Goodman and schools like that, but they really didn't promote it because the idea was stay here and go to school. And St. Louis has a very homegrown mentality that way. And it really wasn't promoted to me to audition for the Goodman, which was only in Chicago and certainly not Juilliard, which was New York. And I think, mm -hmm. not to be egotistical, but I think I might have really been able to, to get into those schools. And, for, and so for you, I wonder, it's, it's like, and again, I'm going to say this 11 times during the course of this interview, but you're so talented. I mean, you are so talented. You're like the male musical theater, Annie Oakley. You're like, boom, <laughs> boom, boom. Anything you can do, I can you do You can do better than anybody. But if you'd gone to those fancy schools, yeah. what would have changed? Everything. You think so? Everything. Oh, sure. Because first of all, to go to any of those schools, you're living away from home. So that's the first big change, which means you explore your life. Never mind the education. You explore your life differently. For me, I think being away from St. Louis would have made a big difference in how I explored what I was doing. My mentor, God bless and rest him, Don Garner, when I realized that I wanted to go to New York, I went to him and I said, look, I think I want to go to New York. And he shut the door to his office. He says, all right, I didn't say this, but I think you will learn in the next two years in New York what you would, it would take you six years here to learn. Uh -huh. If you go and apply yourself and really do what I think you would do or will do. And indeed, by the two years when my class graduated, I was in my first Broadway show, which was a, an all black revival of Guys and Dolls. Uh -huh. Ta-da, ta-da, yeah. And how long did that run? Not long. <laughs> now, what, what do you attribute that to? Well, it was very controversial because, one, it was an all-black version of something. And then this is, mind you, 1976. So things hadn't moved quite nearly as far as they have come thus far. Uh -huh. And also it was Guys and Dolls, which is a sacred musical theater piece. And there were people who were pro because, you know, pro Bailey's version of Hello, Dolly had already happened. And people thought, oh, my God, well, that was wonderful. So thus, guys and dolls. But I think because Hello, Dolly is such a the whole from Thornton Wilder on, it's such an open book of who these people are. Guys and Dolls was a very specific New York Jewish idiom. So there were people who thought we had no business tampering, tinkering, yeah. tooling with guys and dolls. And then there were other people who thought, thank God, there's some different energy on it. <laughs> and our production, the, the arrangements, since we couldn't change a note of the music, but that's all another story. The arrangements had a sort of a wacka, 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 wacka disco kind of thing running under it. And when you hear the, the Broadway cast album now, it's really very electric and alive. People loved it. Those who loved it. I remember, may I say, Rex Reed said something about saying that <laughs> song, sit down, you're rocking the boat. And he said, I turned it into a gospel stomp. And it was just terrible. Oh, Rex was unkind to you. I'd say, yeah. Oh, God. But he was unkind to everybody, but he was specifically unkind. But it was interesting because I always remember thinking, even then at 21, I thought, well, didn't Frank Lesser write a gospel number? Isn't that what this is supposed to be? These people are in the Save Us Soul mission and it's gospel mm -hmm. tinge and so forth. All we really did was took it the next step towards what he was writing to begin with, which I think the last eight measures of the song. Go sit down, you're rocking, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat, blah, 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 blah. Well, they allowed us to change that to the devil will drag you under with so, so heavy you never float. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, which took it in another direction. Oh. Well, that was successful enough that the audience would scream and carry on and they loved it. So then they wrote an encore which was completely new. And sometimes the encore would get th two and three renditions a night. 
thank God I was 21, you know, because oh, yeah. the people would scream and they'd applaud and they'd go on. And Joe Marshall, God rest him, was our drummer. It was really he who decided. He'd listen to the crowd and he'd look at me and he'd listen to the crowd and then he'd hit the drum fill. had a dream. And the more the people screamed, of course, we'd do it again and again and again. So I'm saying that to say that was one of the things out of that show that kept it going, frankly, because people came to see what was new in Guys and Dolls. You weren't in The Wiz prior to Guys and Dolls? No, I've seen that written a few places, and I always try to correct it, because Guys and Dolls was 1976, and I didn't go into The Wiz until late 76, almost 77. So you go from one adaptation of a sacred musical yeah. to another adaptation of uh, uh, someone I'm sure you also were impersonating in the bathroom with a brush in your hand, Judy Garland. <laughs> when you go do The Wiz, was it a different ball of wax there in the way you were treated with adapting Wizard of Oz with a black cast? Oh, God, yes. God, Why? Yes. Because The Wiz was unapologetically black, even though based on L. Frank Baum's and the musical and so forth. But The Wiz opened and... and that was a blockbuster. It wasn't at first... They actually had the closing notice up. And then Ken Harper went to 20th Century Fox. They invested in a TV commercial, and it was so great. And then they went to the churches in Brooklyn. Stephanie Mills belonged to the biggest church, African-American church in Brooklyn. They went to them. They then went to Sister Brother Churches. All of these people started buying tickets and came in busloads, and we know the dollar rules. So as long as there were people there, the show was going to keep running. By virtue of it staying where it was, the word of mouth picked up and then other people started coming. Finish that story to say that by the time it got around to the Tony Awards, they were nominated for 11 Tony Awards. I think they won six. So uh, Guys and Dolls, Nicely, Nicely, The Lion and the Wiz. And these are not lead roles. You're playing more supporting roles. And the next thing is Ain't Misbehaving in 78, correct? Right. And when you do that, you get a lead role in Ain't Misbehaving. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because the five characters, if you will, in Amos Behaven were all supporting people. So the five of us really were the leads, but we were used to being supporting people. So we supported each other in the way that we had supported other people in productions, which made it a very powerful ensemble. When did you notice that you walked in the room and everybody sat up and they were like, it's Ken? You know what I mean? Like, do you really, <laughs> the town That's started funny. to adopt you, that you were part of a business and an industry in New York. That was the blessing of Guys and Dolls is that I did a beloved role. And by me having some sort of a personal signature on it, it separated me from the great Stubby K. So Broadway sort of said, who is this? I remember Clive Barnes. I didn't know who he was at the time, but he wrote a sort of love letter in the Times and saying, who is this guy? Where did he come from? People were calling me up saying, did you read that thing in the Times this morning? Clive Barnes wrote you a love letter. Mm. And I'm like, well, who is Clive Barnes? First of all, they're like, get <laughs> and why is he writing me love letters? Right, why is he writing me love letters? <laughs> but what it did was it opened the door to Broadway and it said, this guy is Broadway caliber. Wherever he came from, welcome, dot, dot, dot. So it sort of sucked me right into the center of the Broadway community immediately. And then to get to do uh, the whiz behind it, which was a huge, huge, huge hit and still very much at the top of the list of appreciated shows. I'll tell this story and I think you'll know what I mean. I had done a club act at Les Mouches. You know, it was a big disco, but it was also a big club there too. I did a tribute to all of the black shows that were running on Broadway at the time. And there were many at the time. And I sort of linked them. I did a number of songs from Raisin and The Wiz and, of course, Guys and Dolls and a couple. Of, and I would link them together with Ease On Down the Road. Okay, let's go on. We're going to Ease On Down, Ease On Down the Road to Raisin. And, blah, blah. <laughs> and some of the people from The Wiz came to see my show because I was in Guys and Dolls and they'd heard blah, blah. So they called me in shortly after Guys and Dolls closed. Now, I had auditioned for The Wiz before. And I just knew I was perfect for it because I'd seen the out-of-town tryout in Detroit. And I went in and I sang Mino Line and they said, thank you. <laughs> That's it? I know I'm right for this part. How dare you say that like that? So when it came back around, my agent said, well, you know, they want to see you at the Majestic Theater. And I said, I auditioned for The Wiz. They didn't like me. He said, no, no, I don't think you understand. They saw your club act. They want to see you at the Majestic Theater. They're not having auditions. They're auditioning you. So I said, oh, shit. 
So I went in and Ken Harper indeed was there. And I sang the songs and he walked down to the edge of the stage and he shook my hand and he says, are you busy for the rest of the afternoon? And I said, no. He said, good, then go down and get your costume measurement. And it took me a minute to understand that meant I got the part. I was like, uh, why? How I mean, what do you want? How wonderful. Yeah, he said. So in answer to your question, I would say that's the first time people sat up when I walked in the room. But it was still different because they invited me into the room. Broadway star Ken Page. If you enjoy listening to conversations with the greats of musical theater, be sure to check out my conversation with another Broadway star, Kelly O'Hara. Even after eight shows a week, I find myself kind of dealing with all of this, all of my innards out there. It's how I filter. It's how I process, I think. And it's why I'm not quite tired of it. For the most part, I find that I go inside it as opposed to just dealing with it all out here. Hear more of my conversation with Kelly O'Hara at heresthething.org. After the break, Ken Page talks about learning comedic timing from some of the best in the business. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I dreamed last night I got on the boat to heaven And by some chance I had brought my dice along 
passengers they knew right from wrong. For the people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Yes, for the people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. That's Ken Page performing Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat from the 1976 Broadway revival of Guys and Dolls. During his tenure on Broadway, Ken Page would often perform solo in smaller clubs. Oftentimes his castmates and other performers were his best audience. With the Broadway community, especially back then, you were in that show at that time, but you were still part of a larger community at large. However long you'd been around, chances are you'd worked with just about anybody or everybody at some point. So there was this serious sense of community that supported people, knew people. I can't even tell you. I remember doing, again, Guys and Dolls, A. Burroughs, who, of course, was a towering figure in the musical theater, him teaching me about comedy timing. He said, look, these jokes are funny. You know what I'm saying? I said, well, I assume they are. <laughs> but you got to do a three rhythm thing for them to work. If you break the rhythm, they're not funny. And my example was I came out with a, a sandwich and Nathan says, hey, nicely, where you been? And I'd say, I had to get something to eat. I felt a little faint. And I would just say the line, crickets. You could hear Nat's fart. It was that quiet, you know. And he said to me, no, no, A, you got to take two beats before you speak, take a bite of the sandwich, and then you say the line with your mouth full, and it's funny. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's very specific. I don't know. You know, maybe I don't want to do that. Hey, he wrote it. He ought to know, right? So I did it. He says, um, hey, nicely, where you been? And I stopped and I took a bite of the sandwich. I went, I had a good something to eat. I felt a little faint. <laughs> Roaring laughter. So, you know what I mean? Right? And I thought to myself, learn, learn, learn. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? People were generous, not only in the production, but they were generous yeah. to tell you things. So getting into that whole thing of like, you start to feel more uh, emboldened. Sure. I think with each show successively, you become more and more aware of what you have that's yours that is applicable to whatever situation you're in. But it takes, it's a process till you get that sort of confidence that while I'm going to sing this song, there's something I do with my voice, with my intention, with my this, that, that is particular to me that's going to make this sing. You know what I mean? And with Amos Behaven, of course, the opportunity was golden because there was nothing. <laughs> Hello. There was a stack of Xerox music that Fats Roller and other people wrote, and then that was it. Who shaped that? Who was responsible for shaping that? Uh, well, we all were. I'm going to say that now on record because Richard Maltby was a wonderful director in many ways, and he certainly put us together. Murray Horowitz, who was the jazz aficionado, and Arthur Faria, who was our choreographer. It was really this combined effort of everybody. Needless to say, five African-American performers brought much of what you saw from our own selves. There was no written characters. There was no scenario that we were following. It was just a matter of you walk in the door and she walks over to you and she sings, baby, baby, what is the matter with you? Well, you got to know who you are, what your intention is, what you're trying to do. All that had to be provided by the actor who was us, right? And that was the way the show really was created. I mean, you know, it was set up. So Amos Behaven, and then you go into Cats. Now, you were in the original company of Cats. The original Broadway cast, yes. You were in the original... <laughs> you were in the original Broadway company of Cats. Yes, I was in Our American Daughters in 1926. Yes. Betty Lynn Buckley and Harry Groner oh and my Terrence God. Mann. Terry Mann. Donna oh King. Oh, my God. Amazing group. Betty Buckley. Oh, my God. So how did that come together? Well, we want to say first it was a huge hit in London. Right. So it had, it had already sailed the seas. It yeah. was just coming in our direction. But that was part of what made it such a big deal for Broadway is because it was such a huge hit in London. And they were going to do the American production. And how do you get summoned to that? Well, Weirdly, 
because they were seeing people for six months for this show. Everybody who could crawl on four legs <laughs> moi, uh, uh, was there auditioning. And I didn't think there was anything in the show for me. I just thought it was a dance show and it was about people in leotards, not me. And I, you know, I didn't pay it any attention. And I went to the closing performance of Ain't Misbehaving on Broadway. I wasn't in the show by that point, but I went to the closing performance and Bernard Jacobs, Bernie Jacobs was there. And he came up to me and said, Kenny, have you been seen for cats? And I said, no, no, I haven't. I, he says, I want you to go in. I want you to blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, Deuteronomy, I think it's a good role for you. I didn't know anything about it. He said, go up to Vinnie Lift's office and get the music, and I'm going to have them call you in. Now, footnote, they had not called me in, and I was certainly someone who was on the scene well enough yeah. by that point. But I guess they did not see me the way Bernie saw me. But he says, that's it. You're going to go in and that's what it's going to be, right? So I'm there learning the addressing of cats. I'm going over the song. I had to audition for the show. And Armelia, my late dear, dear, dear friend, Armelia was in the room next to me. And she said, I'd hear you in the shower page. You've heard of several kinds. She said, and I would think, eh, okay, not so good yet, but it'll get, <laughs> but it'll get there, right? That's right? a friend. Right? That's your Work on that. It was great. So we come back. Uh, uh, I go in. And by this point, it's the last week of the auditions. And they were really calling a lot of people's names and throwing them around. So I go in on Monday, I sing, and they said, okay, great. So they said, come back on Friday. And could you possibly, he said, could you possibly learn a dramatic monologue? I thought, oh, F me. From the show or from some other source? No, something, anything, just a, a monologue. To and I'm be thinking, or not to be. Yes, I'm thinking, ain't it a musical? <laughs> <laughs> So I go, I learn, I luckily had done this monologue in a show I did about Louis Armstrong. I played the character Joe Oliver, his mentor. So I had a monologue. Okay. So I come back, I do the monologue. Again, Trevor comes in the stage after the monologue and he says, your talents are many fold and manifest. I thought, well, if that wasn't the kiss of death, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that you. was like, thank you for and playing the, our game. Way, and, the British way of saying thank you. <laughs> you know. So I go out Fire Island for the weekend. They're announcing it on Monday. And this is Friday. And I thought, I'm out of the city. I don't want to be here. So I get back Monday morning. The phone rings. And it's Tyler Getchell. And he says, oh, Ken Page, it's Tyler Getchell. I said, yes, Tyler, good morning. Uh, how are you? I want to say, don't fuck around. Just tell me what's up. I said, I'm good. I'm good. He goes, well, we were wondering here in the office if you'd like to play Old Deuteronomy and Cats for us. And, you know, you know that feeling when your heart, like, sinks and rises at the same time? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah yes, I will. I would. Please, yes. I, I'll take it. How long did you do the show? Two years. Did you find that, you know, two years, I mean, my God, two years of your life every night. Yeah. What, what happens during the arc of the two years? Many things. <laughs> the beginning, of course, is exciting because it's the opening and it's this and the energy. And that carries you almost a year. Then it settles in like, okay, now they're coming to see what they've heard about, which means second phase, you've got to deliver the show. It's not just a matter of coming out there on the energy of being fabulous and amazing. Now you've got to deliver them to show that they have paid this high price ticket to see that they've heard is amazing. I like to say that's the second phase. You've got to you've got to meet the standard of the show, not just your own standard. And then the third phase is where I think it becomes a matter of being uh, a professional, where you you know what you're supposed to do, you know the temperature of the show, you know what it's supposed to do, if you know what I mean, and you do it. It isn't always inspired because some nights you do not feel it, mm -hmm. but you have posts, road marks that you hit that get you through the show, and your technique will carry you, the performer. The show will carry everyone, but your technique will carry you personally. And I think also it has a lot to do with how you were trained and, you know, how you came through the ropes as to how you do that. I came from the old school of, you know, you give it your all, you hit it. And if you're doing that, you're not even conscious of it being maybe boring or a little rote because you always find yourself in the doing. You know, you're considered one of the great, great, performers in the musical theater and you walk into the room what does a director have to offer you well you know i will use someone as an example michael greif who directed many wonderful things but rent was among them and i've worked with michael twice 
we did a production of Randy Newman's Faust. I love Michael Greif because he's one of the, and I, I, you know, I admit I'm, I'm not easy because I've been around a long time. So if you don't know something, you better know something. That's what I'm leading to. <laughs> yeah. And my feeling is if you know something, I'm down with it. Tell me yeah. what you know. Share it but with me. But if you me. don't Share know anything, you cannot fake it out with me because I see you, as my grandmother used to say, I knew where you were going before you knew where you were going. It's real. You know what I mean? Michael Greif is one of those directors where, and he's so like open and interested in what you think and not in the sense of you get to do whatever you want that's not it at all it's like well let's talk about what is it that you think there's no bad ideas there's no bad ideas no there's no bad idea and i did a another show with him called most wanted a musical which was believe it or not a musicalization of the kunanan murder oh god it was really actually very very good and dark and so forth it was too dark for people this is before the tv movie and all that sort of stuff and people were freaked the fuck out this is the Versace murder, yeah. Oh yeah. He did a musical about that? Yes. Holy shit. A wonderful musical. And of course, Versace was the end of his murdering spree. What was the name of the show? Most Wanted. Oh, my God. And what year was this produced? Oh, God. About 15 years ago at La Jolla Playhouse. And it didn't transfer. It didn't go anywhere. They talked about it. We did another reading thingy of it in New York. I played a drag queen named Stormy Leather. <laughs> oh god <laughs> thank you thank you i'm here all week yeah and i had this great song called never saw it coming which was about how you do these things in life and you never see it coming you think you're going to do this you're going to be that you're going to do and then something else happens and you never see it coming and uh, the first line of the song was i met a bitch the boy which gives you a setup <laughs> i knew a bitch the boy had it all class money everything and so on and so forth. Very deep, very dark show. Anyway, Michael says to me, and I'm doing the thing and it's working, you know, it's doing well. I said, Michael, I keep having this feeling. I said, would you mind if I, can I smoke? And this is the example of Michael Greif. And he looked at me as only he can, he goes, I wish you would, please do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I said, yes, yes. And it changed the whole feel of it because one, the lighting and the cigarette smoke and the whole thing, and it gave me something to start with. And I exhaled on the first note, you know, all that kind of shit you do. And it made it a thought rather than a delivery of a thought. It was a Burroughs in the sandwich all over again. That's right. Hey, hello. If I could take an inhale on this cigarette and exhale and go, I met a boy. <sighs> Oh, baby. Bitch had it all. It sets up a whole different thing. You know. Now, LA, New York, LA, New York, LA, New York, St. Louis. <laughs> How did the great Ken Page decide St. Louis is where I need to be in this point of my life? Uh, well, other than your mom. Well, that's kind of, I mean, if it were only, you know, it was my mom, my stepdad, I have two aunts, one of whom I'm in charge of her care now she's in a facility right. but i knew alec that they were all getting older and the older i got the more i started to understand they weren't these wizard people that i thought they were when i was young they were vulnerable there were needs that they had that they didn't even know how to begin to address and as they got older they couldn't you know sort of jockey their way through it it was becoming more of an issue of how to dot 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 and not, you know, to put it all on them, it was easy, it's easier to be here. And I did a, a calculation of could I still work from here? And I had initiated a show that I do called Page by Page, which is an autobiographical two hour, one handed, blah, blah, blah. And I went all over the country with it. That's how I kept my bills paid. I took, I yeah. got on the road like an old actor does, yeah. and I sang my songs and I got my check and I touched a lot of people. But I could do that from St. Louis. Of course, show business, whether it's sports, music, entertainment, the African American performer gets into the same limo. He's picked up to go to the show. He's got the star dressing room. Everything is, when you're making money for them, everything is as fluffy and as comfortable for the white or the black performer. But were there ever roadblocks for you in that area? Oh, are you kidding? All the time. It's a constant. I can say that, and I don't mean that to be evasive. It's a constant. From the time I think of when I started in 76 with Guys and Dolls, where people would say to my face, how dare you, that Stubby K's role. And I'm thinking, but I'm up there eight times a week. I'm doing it. On, on, on through many things. Cats, when I was casting cats, there were people, black and white, who just 
were not having it. The white contingency thought someone white should, of course, been cast. Why did they cast me? Uh, my brothers and sisters were like, well, you've gone over to the enemy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But mind you, any one of them would have certainly been happy to have the part. So it's a constant. In Hollywood, it was very difficult. There were many auditions I went on, Alec, where they just wanted me to just be more urban, which was a code. You know, I did one show where I played the owner of a diet company. Okay, that's funny enough. I'm a big guy. But as the progression of the rehearsals went on, they said, well, you're going to come in eating a candy bar. I thought, come on. I did, you know, it's funny enough. You don't have to put a candy bar. By the time we got to filming, they gave me a giant oversized Hershey bar that I was to walk in with. And those kinds of things, that's just sort of on the one side. But it, it is a constant and it continues, you know. And because I have been around a long time and I am 67 years old as of yesterday, you know what I'm saying? I know what's up. And people try to bullshit you with stuff that they're trying to veil or, you know, they're really being racial or they're being prejudicial. My generation, we were the beneficiaries of the idea of we better do the right thing because people are watching. The generation before us was we can do anything we want because nobody's watching, you know. My kids uh, are, are obviously going through the catalog of films and they wanted to start watching Nightmare Before Christmas. And, of course, there's nothing more thrilling in my life than them being captivated by a performance of you as Oogie Boogie <laughs> and me sitting there on a couch with my kids and going, I know him. I know him. And they're like, <laughs> my kids look at me like, oh, please. I'd never seen Nightmare Before Christmas. And I see it like six months ago and we watch it. You know, the kids want to watch every movie 20 times. And so we watch it. It's very inventive. And inside of that song, it defines your talent. You do so many things. What makes you one of the greatest performers in the history of the musical theater ever is the acting inside the singing. How did that go down? As a child, like I said, in my room, playing cast albums and being everybody on the album and so forth, that was the beginning of all that for me. Because, you know, for me, I wasn't seeing anything. I was only hearing it, right? So when Nightmare Before Christmas came around, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get to do what I've been tipping around for 50 years. Man, do you ever, man, do you ever. You feel that song, you've got, there's so much great acting inside that song and, the, and, the, and you're vocalizing. I produced you in a show one time. Yes. And uh, I think the deepest I ever fell in love with another man, I'm a straight guy, but the deepest I've ever fell in love with a man was when he sang, are you with me? We're gonna sing one phrase of this, ready? Whispering above Tammy. Tammy, Tammy's in love. You sang that song, and I melted in the air. I thought, this guy <laughs> is the most beautiful soul. And you are, of the people I've known in this business, one of the most beautiful souls I've ever met in my life. You're so talented. Well, that is beyond kind. I love you, and I love your talent. I love you back. Actor and singer... Ken Page. Betty Buckley grew up dreaming of singing her heart out. And in the stuff of legend, on her first day in New York City, Betty Buckley landed a part in the Broadway musical 1776. That early success gave her a chance to prove to herself and the folks back home she was ready. My mom had been a singer-dancer growing up, and she was very good, very talented. But my father, when he married her, told her she couldn't do that anymore. My father was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. When I was in the fifth grade, he retired, and, and um, he became a college professor. He was a really brilliant guy, but he was very opposed to show business. And my mother had this extensive cast album collection and all the great singers and everything. And she sang around their house all the time. So I was exposed to all that very early on and loved it. From And she took me to see my first musical, which was Pajama Game, with the original Bob Fosse choreography when I was 11. And when the number steam heat, and I, I remember where I was sitting in the theater and there was this energy that just went up to my head what I've learned as an adult was an epiphany, you know, and it was just like, boom, that, that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. So then from age 11, I became fixated on that. What did you do with that fixation? 
Well, I listen to Bye Bye Birdie all the time, and I told my mother, you know, I could play one of the teenagers in that. And I, when she was mad at me, I would run down the hall into her room and slide in on my knees and do the whole speech that the kid does to Conrad Birdie. Tell us, oh, beautiful one, tell us how you make that glorious sound oh, that even oh, now. one last kiss. Yes, exactly. I, I walked around my house for years. My mother would go, when are you going to do your homework? i go, <laughs> baby, one more kiss. It really is sublime, oh, honey. I mean, I knew that song. Exactly. That was this junior high talent show that I wanted to be in, but I was really short forever. I was like four feet, eight inches tall forever. No. And I grew all at once in one summer. Oh, good God. But I thought I would be short forever. And I you know, thought, well, maybe I'll be the first girl jockey, you know. But anyway, there was this talent show and I came home and I knew they would never ask me to be in it. But I'd studied dance with my aunt since I was three. She was a dance teacher and my grandmother. So I had these two very powerful female role models uh, that were performers and artists. And I told my mother I wanted to do Steam Heat in the junior high talent show. And my mother was like, oh, that's interesting because the guys who were the choreographer and the director of that just opened a dance studio in Fort Worth. I will call them. So she called them and said, my daughter wants to learn Steam Heat. And they said, well, can she sing? And I was like, yeah, because I sung in the church choir, but they always put me in the back row and told me to blend in, you know. So I sang and they said, no, no, Betty, sing as loud as you can. So I knew I had this giant voice. When did you know you had a giant voice? When? Because I was constantly singing with all the great lady singers in my bedroom to their albums and basically imitating them. And I knew I had this like sound and but I didn't know its value because our choir teacher would always put me on the back row and really get annoyed because my voice cuts through, you know, and and I was trying so hard to sing soft, but it still has this resonant <laughs> edge. <laughs> so so they, they told me to sing as loud as I could, so I did, and I just felt unleashed, and they were like, oh, my God. And they, those guys made me realize I had this unique voice. So they gave me the original Fosse choreography, and I got in the junior high talent show, and I brought the house down. They all went nuts. And from that time, I was like little bitty Betty Buckley with this giant voice. Then my mother became this like huge stage mother, and she was constantly entering me in everything. And my father was going nuts about it. And then I got my first professional job when I was 15. I, I played the role of Dainty June and Gypsy at our local theater, and I joined Equity and all that stuff. And then I worked there every summer. And so I had a lot of experience by the time I got to New York. What got you to New York? Well, I I was recruited to enter the Miss Fort Worth pageant. I hated beauty pageants. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say all that because I have friends in beauty pageants and I won a lot of scholarships. And, and it wasn't for you, shall we say. I was this budding young feminist. I was, a, I was a charter subscriber to Ms. Magazine, and Gloria Steinem gave me words for all these feelings of inequity that you I felt. You were Ethel in. Merman meets Gloria Steinem. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll take that. <laughs> but you didn't want that. No, I was embarrassed by it. I remember once I won the Miss Fort Worth pageant because I was basically recruited to do that. And then I was in the Miss Texas pageant. I didn't win the talent competition, which was really strange. So I was runner-up to Miss Texas, I think second runner-up or something. But the producer of the Miss America pageant was there. And I was invited the following year to be a guest entertainer at the Miss America pageant. And this agent saw me on television, sing and dance. And they asked me to fly to New York right after the Miss America pageant to audition for them. So it was Ashley Famous Agency, which became ICM. And there was ICM, a yeah. very famous agent named Eric Shepard. And I sang for these like 11 or 12 agents and he just stood up and said, sign her. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> mm. So this responsible agent, Roger Hess, who went on to become a big Broadway producer, he's a really nice, wonderful guy, still a great friend. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I have to go back and finish college or my father will kill me. And so he, he was like, okay, do that. And when you finish college, you'll come to New York. And you did finish TCU for journalism. Yeah. Why? Why journalism? Because my mother had been a journalist. My dad thought that being a journalist was a complimentary profession for a wife and mother to the husband, but that my purpose in life, as all young women should have, he thought, was to be married and have children, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to New York, and, and I knew 
what my voice would sound like, and I knew how it would affect people. And then when I was 35, and I was in my dressing room at the Winter Garden, they brought in my recording of Memory after we'd made the record, and I heard the recording, and that vision flashed back of when I was 13, and I was like, oh... It took from age 13 to 35, but there it is. So anyway, this agent kept calling me after college and asking me to come to New York. And I was, at that point, I was really experiencing, I think, PTSD because I'd been with Miss America on a USO tour. And Miss America and I and one other girl went into all the intensive care units and all the hospitals in Japan. And we also toured all the military bases in Korea. I was like my dad is wrong. War is not noble. You know, my father was a real hawk and he really believed in the nobility of war and stuff. And I I came back really changed and we were in a consistent debate about the validity of a show business career, which he thought was beneath me. And I was very confused about it all. And I was also in love when I was in a senior with this Dallas Cowboy quarterback. And he turned out to be, <laughs> he broke my heart. So when I came back, I thought, okay, forget my show business aspirations because I was a journalism major and I'd written for this newspaper quite a lot. I even had a teen page when I was in college for the Fort Worth Press. So I had a job there and I thought, okay, that's it. I'm just going to do this. And so the agent kept calling and he got me to come see this show in Dallas with my mother, which was an industrial show that Flip Wilson, the comedian, was doing with a band called Your Father's Mustache. So they called me up on stage and had me sing. And the only song I knew my key in was You Made Me Love You. So I sang it and the audience went nuts, which was great. And then Rogers talks to the buyer and he, they offer me a job to put me in this show, but to pretend I'm an audience member in all these different cities. And they offered me a lot of money. It was way more than I was being paid at the fourth press. So my father couldn't deny the, the job, the money. Right. And so he reluctantly let me do that. When I think of you, I think of the acting and the singing. And the Thank acting you. is in the singing. <laughs> Thank you. When you teach people... Do you teach acting or singing? I've taught for the Terry Schreiber School for years and years and years, and I used to teach scene study and song interpretation. And I was teaching these five-day workshops maybe three times a year for them whenever I was in New York. And what do you teach them about how the acting influences the singing? Well, that's complicated. I was really fortunate that in 1776, I worked with all these incredible actors. There were like 30 men and two women. And they really mentored me. And they were like, sat me down when I was 21. And I'd gotten that show my first day in New York City because of this wonderful agent, Roger Hess, who got me to New York and shepherded me into that. And so I got that audition, which was amazing. So they sat me down and said, look, Betty, this is what you're good at. This is what you've got talent-wise. And this is what you need to learn. Go here go there, do this. And so I did because I loved musical theater. I loved, but it used to be called musical comedy, right? So there was like a dancing chorus and a singing chorus and a, you know, everything was separate and everything was like, you know, showbiz. And so I wanted, I really, my favorite actresses were Kim Stanley and Geraldine Page and later on Jenna Rollins. And I was like, oh my God, what it must be like to have that skill. Heavy duty dramatic actresses. Yeah, to do like really psychological portraits to like bring raw truth to uh, theater and film. And, you know, I wanted to be that skilled and I wasn't. So I was really lucky that in that time period, I did some Broadway shows and then I got that TV show, Eight is Enough. And on Eight is Enough, I went to my dailies and I was like, wait a minute, I, get, I see 10 seconds of good work over there when I'm in the doorway. Why can't I bring that same quality to the scene work, right? What's wrong with me? And I was also studying with Stella Adler I never put my work in front of her. I took her acting class. I took her script analysis class in New York, and I took her script analysis class again in L.A. while I was on Eight is Enough. I knew I wasn't a good enough actress to keep my sense of self-respect or whatever. You know, she gave me her, like, searing critiques. I wasn't ready. So that was okay. I learned a lot in the back row taking copious notes. But that 
TV show was great because I really was able to see what worked and why. You were on that for two seasons, three seasons? How many? Four. Four seasons. Dick Van Patten. Yeah. And then on the heels of Eight is Enough, I got the wonderful classic American film Tender Mercy starring Robert Duvall with a Horton Foote script directed by Bruce Beresford. And I was like, oh, my God, she's an alcoholic country western singing general Rowland's time it was like written for me <laughs> here's and, your chance it was amazing and i learned so much working with duval and wilford brimley and ellen barkin and they wouldn't let me see my dailies till i finished the job and then they brought me in on a saturday and had me sit down and look at my scenes back to back and i sat there in that little screening room and i was like oh okay i know how to do this now when you're there, you're in Los Angeles. Eight is Enough was what, the late 70s, mid 70s? Eight is Enough was 79 to 81. So when you're out there doing Eight is Enough, you shot it in California. Uh-huh. And when you're out there and you go from a, sh- a show that I recall was a successful show that was a hit yeah, show. Yeah, it was huge. Why don't you just stay out in California and camp out there? and pursue movies and television. Well, Were you just addicted to singing on Broadway? Well, I knew I was going to sing on Broadway, and I had this brilliant teacher, and I was flying back to work with him every six weeks, which the heads of Eight is Enough mocked me for. I remember this guy passed me in the parking lot, and I was driving a Bundy Rinterreck, and he had a black Porsche, <laughs> and he had sleek black hair and wore black clothes. And he's like, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to New York for my voice lesson. He goes, you have such delusion of, sort of grandeur, Betty. You'll be lucky if you play American Mothers for the rest of your life. And I was like, we'll see, Greg, we'll see. Isn't that horrible? God, that makes horrible. me so sad when They you say were that. really weird guys. I mean, and they were mean, really mean. But anyway, I survived all that. And so... I got this Tender Mercies, and then I got Cats, that following on the heels of that. Tender Mercies was actually released in the winter that Cats opened in October. But is that what you want, to go from Tender Mercies to the next movie? Yeah, that would have been great, but my dream was to bring, like, really that authenticity to the musical theater. To originate. Right, and so those of us who were fortunate enough to work in the musical theater. We changed the face of the musical theater in that time period, you know, with Sondheim, Fosse, all that. It it, it evolved from musical comedy to musical theater. Mm -hmm. And Grizabella in, in Cats, Singing Memory, was my first opportunity to bring that level of dramatic intensity to the musical theater stage. And I knew it was my turn, and I knew I was ready to do that. So had you been offered an attractive role in a film on the heels of Tender Mercies, you would have passed because Cats was what you wanted to do. That's what you needed to do. I think that's a weird exercise. Would I have passed? I don't know. Everything I'm sharing with you, I learned in retrospect. And But honestly, Mm -hmm. growing up, I didn't think I was beautiful. And I aspired to the musical theater. Then I met Brian De Palma and auditioned for his film, Phantom of the Paradise. He didn't cast me. But several months after that, he took me to dinner and gave me the book, Carrie, and said, read this book. I want you to play the gym teacher. Awful gym teacher. Oh, she was a great character. (laughs) So that was a great film debut that he gave me the opportunity to do. And then from that movie, I got Eight is Enough. Now, Eight is Enough was, at the time, I thought I'd made a horrible mistake taking a job. Why? Because it was like working in a factory. And in retrospect only, it was where I needed to be to learn the next thing. Well, no, Cats, I mean, there's not much to say about Cats, I think, that hasn't been said. Obviously, it's this iconic and your performance, and there's a song, which we don't need to go into now, (laughs) that you (laughs) sing that is this uh, kind of dream state everybody goes into when they sing this song. Good description. That's accurate, a dream state. Yeah, I think that a lot of the music in Cats is a dream state. It's really, it's just, you have to suspend it's moving art. It's like an art installation. Yeah, you you can't have any preconceptions of what you just to sit there and go with it. Yeah, and, exactly. And it's like uh, it's it's like. And when I think about that, what I think about is you work hard. Yeah. In the theater, people work hard. Did you have any ongoing injuries, pains? Did you suffer physically from your years of working in the theater? Yeah, my knees were shot after two years of Sunset Boulevard, running up and down stairs twelve times a night, and. 
Then repetitive choreography. I had a shoulder replacement in my right shoulder was replaced in September, which I'm really grateful I did. It's then the surgeon was great and the apparatus is great. I'm really grateful. I'm going to have to have a knee, probably both knees replaced, but I'm going to start with one. But you have to be in a process either with a great osteopath or chiropractor. The other thing I found out recently that's very disturbing to me is I've had, because of working in these dusty old theaters that they never keep clean and mold in the atmosphere and stuff, I've had repetitive bouts of bronchitis for years now. And it's created a a kind of asthmatic lung condition that I have to work with now, which is not nice. Singer and actor Betty Buckley. Be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Betty Buckley talks about the challenges of playing Norma Desmond in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Betty Buckley worked with famed British director Trevor Nunn twice first in Cats in 1982, then again in Sunset Boulevard in 1994. In the intervening years, Betty Buckley's confidence in her own vision grew. First of all, he's a genius, and the way he directed us in Cats and the way he put all that together was really unbelievable. I mean, no other Cats company had that kind of 
amazing bond. We did improv workshops, theater games, and at least a month of rehearsals and a couple of weeks on our hands and knees as cats, but just incredible Grotowski theater games and stuff like that. What does he have to offer you when you do Sunset? Well, it was interesting because they flew me to London and my audition took an hour. I've never auditioned that long in my life. They brought me in a week in advance and taught me all the songs and then told me I had to sing them in Glenn Close's keys. And I was like, no, I won't be singing them in Glenn Close's keys. And so the music director was a little flummoxed about that. And then he kept coming up on stage directing me and directing me. And I'm a meditator. So whatever they threw at me, I just stayed in my focus and did mm. what they said. And then when I got the part, I was then back in London in this rehearsal process. And I was like, okay, so I brought in mythological references the Greek drama, Medusa, Medea, and he was interested in that. And then he would listen really closely, and then he'd say, okay, show me. And then I would show him what I meant. And gradually, over a six-week rehearsal process to eight weeks, I saw him liking what I was doing, right? And, I, and then he gave me rain to interpret it that way. You'd earned the right to do it your way. Yeah, and so then... We opened and it was like a huge success. And I was just like, oh, yay, you know. So then I got New York and they were very nervous because the New York Times, they followed me around to do this big feature in the arts and leisure section. And it was really nice. This writer was really great. But the angle the editor wanted was, is she a big enough star to replace Glenn Close? So they were really nervous that my interpretation, because it was so vastly different from what Glenn Close had done, it was vastly different from what any of them had done. And so they got nervous. Mm -hmm. And he was very nervous. Trevor... None. Yep. Yeah. And I, one day in rehearsal, he was very nervous and very upset. And I was like, what, what's going on? And so I started crying because I couldn't understand what he wanted. And when I was crying, he said, this, this, this is what's missing. And I was, I said, what, what? And he goes, this. And I was like, wretched? Because I felt wretched. He goes, wretched. And I said, oh, and then I just stopped crying. I said, why didn't you just tell me that? Where do you want wretched? And so I got really calm and he goes, okay. And then we went through the whole script and he goes here, 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 and here. And I'm like, okay. I said, that's all you got to do. Just tell me what you need. Now, Betty Buckley, I, I want to get to something else. The power of your voice and the uniqueness. Where does the power come from? Can I just share with you a moment I had with you when we were younger? Yes. We were at a big public theater benefit years ago, and you were part of it too. And I sang Aquarius, and it was a very powerful performance. And you were watching me, and, and you just like shook your head. And I was like so touched by that, That's like because I felt so seen and cherished and valued by you. Thank you. So you ask where my power comes from. It comes from a spiritual connection, right? It's like I believe that at essence, all human beings are connected. Like I have a heart that's beating that wants to love and be loved. You have a heart that's beating that wants to love and be loved. At that essence, we are entirely the same. Our stories are different, but that I amness, that essence is the same since, my, since I was like 26 years old. And I've been on this quest I thought there has to be a handbook. And I found that there's like this core body of truth in every religion, in every major philosophy on the planet. So I found meditation while I was on Aetis Enough. I went, my ex-husband, Peter Flood, took me to a meditation class after my first season on Aetis Enough. And then I learned that I could use meditation in my work and that there was this higher consciousness in me that was the creative force that if I made myself an instrument of that, good things happened. And I was a witness about that as surely as the audience was. 
And I learned how to do that before Cats and before Tender Mercies. And then my work just changed and every, everything opened up. And the power uh, that I was able to access as an instrument of that consciousness, that's where it comes from, is I'm meditating my way through that. And, and it's like being, in a way, <laughs> on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, right? Because when you have a, a part like Norma Desmond, that you can go all out full tilt boogie, to quote Janis Joplin, then this, it's like holding to this mantra, holding to this like focus point and then let everything happen. That's how I work. You are on an island of your own in terms of your talent and your uniqueness. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Thank you, Alec. I feel humbled by your compliment. Thank you. Well, listen, um, we interviewed Ken, my old friend Ken. And the thing the two of you also have in common other than cats is you both went home. Ken moved back to St. Louis. Yeah. He moved back to take care of his mom. Isn't he the greatest guy ever? He and I had a dressing room right next to each other at the Winter Garden, so we were really close pals. He's a lovely, lovely man. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this one more question, which is if I'm on iTunes, which of these albums would you say is not your favorite, but which ones you're particularly fond of? Ghostlight that T-Bone Burnett uh, produced is a beautiful album that's very haunting. And T-Bone and I grew up together in Fort Worth, and he made the first recording of my voice when we were both, like, 17. But so Ghostlight, and then my recent stuff that I really love is uh, Story Songs and Hope. Thank you for taking the time to do this. My love to you. Alec, thank you. And good luck down there. I adore you, and I'm so happy to connect with you. Thank you. My thanks to Broadway legends Betty Buckley and Ken Page. I'll leave you with Betty singing As If We Never Said Goodbye from Sunset Boulevard live at Carnegie Hall. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The whispered conversations In overcrowded hallways So much to say, not just today, but always Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.